So this is very exciting. We're going to um, do an interview and talk about how to raise visionary leaders, which is a fantastic follow-on to uh, Rich's teaching uh, this morning. So we're very excited to do that. So I'm going to be interviewing Debbie Wright, who you all know leads Trent Vineyard Nottingham here. And um, before that, she was trained at Southwest London Vineyard with John and Ellie Mumford. Yay. And also Andy Smith, who leads Belfast City Vineyard. Um, I believe you sort of, well, you nearly planted it, didn't you? You kind of went to visit and help and ended up planting it. Is being, that right? Being press ganged into yeah, yeah press ganged like into planting a church. So yeah, so they they planted that church about ten years ago, and uh, he was also trained in Chicago with Steve Nicholson, and then Eric Pickerel, who is leading a church in Amsterdam, and uh, he's been there with his wife, Julia, for five years. Yes, five years. And um, before that, uh, Eric was at Columbus Vineyard with Rich Nathan and heading up a ministry called Joshua House, which is a, a sort of training ministry with young leaders. And from there, I believe they planted many churches. So it's very exciting to be able to interview them on this subject uh, this morning. So what I would really love you to do uh, before we kick off is just tell a little bit more of your stories of how you became the fine leaders that you are today. <laughs> Debbie, <laughs> you want to start with me? Yeah, go on. Well, um, I grew up in South America. My parents were missionaries. And I, uh, looking back, I realized that there was a, an environment of, of leadership there. I, I was very excited by what I heard about church planting in South America. We would hear stories of deliverance and people coming to faith. And I was always very excited about that as a child. Came back to England and was guttingly disappointed to find that not everybody in England were Christians. Because I thought my parents were missionaries because everybody here were Christians. And I suddenly lost confidence in the gospel. And uh, I found myself at boarding school having to go to chapel every week. Well, every day, actually. And it was just the, the Christian faith felt as if it was dead in this country. And I didn't have any friends who were Christians. And uh, went through a real season of, of doubting uh, how, you know, Jesus and the church was ever going to be relevant to this nation. And then I, and my life kind of went off on a really downward spiral. And in, I was in quite a dark place when I encountered the vineyard. And I remember just entering into um, a room where there was this just wonderful worship. It was at my dad's church. Now they were, he was vicar of St. Andrew's in Chorley Wood, just north of London. And um, just being undone by the worship. And, uh, and at the end of the service, responding to a call for ministry and the power of God um, just being so um, vibrant in the room. And I, I, I think I must have been delivered um, I kind of certainly sort of passed out. And when I got up, I had this overwhelming sense that everything was about surrender, that I would surrender everything. And um, the words that often come back to me are Thomas Chalmers, who talks about the expulsive power of a new affection. And, um, and I just knew that Jesus would be everything and that whatever he asked me to do would be what we would do. And that sort of um, journey of surrender goes on and on to this day. But after that... Um, John and I, for me, it was a turning around of everything that I was doing. I, I had a trajectory towards training in dance and art and all of that. And I began to say, well, Lord, what is it? And I had no idea that it would have anything to do with leadership. Um, John and I got married. We just knew we had to live in Nottingham. This is 25 or so years ago. 
we came to Nottingham and we just got involved in our local church. But the disappointing thing was is that our friends who were unbelievers, who were becoming really interested in Jesus through all our stories of what Jesus was doing through ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit and that sort of thing, um, they wanted to know more. But when we took them to the local church, it, it, it felt like they weren't ready for unbelievers. So we had a lot of frustration. And, uh, and around that time, people started asking us or telling us that we had a call to leadership on us. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't like any of the models that I saw, although I did like vineyard leaders that I met. And we ended up going out to Anaheim and then going back, coming back to plant with John and Eleanor. And that's where the training and all of that really began. Andy, what about you? Well, I uh, grew up in a fair, my parents uh, were Christians, so I grew up in a Christian home, um, but we went along to a fairly traditional uh, setup of church. Uh, I didn't know you could plant churches. I didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit I, until I met the vineyard, um, and uh, I just didn't really sense any life there. I mean, it was the model of ministry where there was one minister, always a man, who did everything and we just kind of sat there and watched him and vaguely cheered him on sometimes kind of thing and <laughs> that that's what church was and and that is you know and those kind of guys that i saw doing that were always extroverts they were always people people and that just wasn't who i was and and i just kind of discounted it and i had no kind of model for for ministry i always found myself as a you know as a kid and, and growing up in teenage years um, not like choosing leadership, but always being kind of pushed into it by my peers or on sports teams or whatever. I always kind of found myself leading, but always doing that really reluctantly because I just didn't think you could be a leader, especially a Christian leader, and, you know, have the kind of temperament that I have. And, and uh, um, I went along to university and, you know, just on a track to go do something else and went along to a vineyard, uh, the Evanston Vineyard, on a dare kind of thing because uh, in my circles I was running in theologically, um, we just had no room for the Holy Spirit, and we of course knew that we were right, and we were going to go along and mock people, because we heard they danced in worship at the Evanston <laughs> Vineyard, and that must be of the devil, so um, we went along, and uh, I have not been the same since, I met, uh, I'm not quite, I haven't quite approached dancing in worship yet, but I know that it's of the Lord, so anyway, um, could be tonight you never know you never know when the lord will move well, but anyway I'll be watching you andy yeah well so i i met i met the vineyard and you know kind of some of the things that rich was talking about this morning where you have to have a vision of god i think i met god i don't think i did i know i did um and that's where it kind of started i also met a guy named steve nicholson who i would say is my spiritual father and deep deep impact on my own life and I began to see a model of ministry I mean, Steve's temperament I think we would say is an introvert and he has a significant ministry <laughs> and uh, and it just kind of blew my mind that you could lead and lead significantly and also have a, a similar temperament to my own and it kind of set me on a trajectory uh, that I just actually can't believe when I think about uh, where I came from so Thank you. Thank you. Eric, how about you? Yeah, a little bit like Andy, your story. I grew up, uh, my parents dragged me to church, a traditional church, and uh, I never heard the gospel, actually, until uh, I was 16, and uh, a ministry came along, not a church ministry that uh, uh, shared the gospel, and uh, 
I heard the gospel at a camp, and my whole life got turned upside down. And I, I really became angry at that church uh, for never hearing the gospel there. Uh, because uh, I, I wonder, like, how could I have gone to a church for so many years and never heard the gospel? And, and at that point, I was really sort of damaged goods. Like, I would have never looked at myself and said, you're the kind of person to be a leader. I was not a leader in school. I was not someone that uh, you would look at and say, wow, that guy is a natural leader uh, by any means. Um, but I began leading because that's what people around me did. Um, the people were reaching out to me and they were leading uh, and there was an expectation that that's what you do as a Christian, that you give back. And, uh, and so that's what I started to do then in youth ministry and then eventually uh, in that traditional church. Uh, but there was never anyone that uh, ever came along and said, you know what, you could do this. Uh, I, I never thought that I could actually uh, do ministry in, in the sense of actually uh, do ministry vocationally. It was never an option for me. It was uh, sort of like you have to jump through a thousand hoops and, uh, and you probably can't do that. Um, and then someone said, why don't you come to the vineyard? And so I started cheating on my traditional church and going <laughs> over to the vineyard. And uh, the first thing I went to was, uh, this was in Columbus, so I went to uh, uh, the Columbus Vineyard where Rich was uh, pastoring. And I had no idea what the vineyard was. I wondered if we were going to be drinking wine like a lot of people do when you come to the vineyard the first yeah. time. And uh, <laughs> unfortunately, it was a very boring financial meeting. Uh, it was one of those <laughs> annual uh, meetings that uh, I showed up to and very unmemorable. Um, <laughs> which I guess that's good. There were no church fights or anything. Uh, but I ended up coming back and coming to a power healing conference, which is what John was doing at the time. And our lives got turned really upside down by the kingdom and the experience of the kingdom. And I met Rich. And it was the first time that someone said, hey, there's a place for you. There's, there's a pathway for you. You can do this. And, uh, and so that started then, uh, we started an internship, I did VLI, and started getting training, and started meeting the Holy Spirit, so God was starting to do a deep work in me as a leader as well, uh, so that was really the beginning for us, it was uh, someone coming along, Rich coming along and saying, there's a place for you, mm -hmm. and we care about you, not just for the next three years or five years, like a lot of parachurch ministries, but the church is here for your whole life. Yeah. And uh, that, that was huge for us. Yeah. And then you ended up in Amsterdam. And then we ended up in Amsterdam. <laughs> it was never a part of our plan. That's the wonderful thing about following God. Yeah. You never know where you're going to end so up. So the vision um, that was beginning to sort of be seeded in you early on, um, how did that uh, vision that became kind of what you're doing now, the, the steps into what you're doing now. How did that grow? Where did it, where did it come? What, what did it look like? Yeah, I think a lot of what Rich was talking about this morning, I, I think back to the experiences I had. Um, you know, I, I really, you know, as I said, I, I thought of myself as damaged goods at the time. The Lord has done a lot of healing in my life and brought a, a new confidence in him and his mm -hmm. kingdom. Um, but at the time... Um, I remember just um, in prayer, really dreaming 
and, and praying uh, big prayers, things that were just impossible for me. I remember uh, when I was 20 years old praying, God, I want to pastor a church of thousands of people, which now I think that was a stupid prayer. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever pray that. Uh, but, you know, it was okay. so much bigger than me. It was not possible. And, and when we moved to Amsterdam, it, it was the same thing. It was like uh, Rich said with this, you know, being caught in the gap. You know, where these dreams happen in prayer. And God just started uh, capturing us with things that were so much bigger than us. Mm -hmm. So much bigger than who we were, what we could do. But a vision of his kingdom mm -hmm. that compelled us to do things that we knew we couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was a lot of it. It was over the years just through prayer and mm -hmm. through our, you know, being in a place that encourages dreaming. Mm -hmm. um, you know, which Rich has created that environment in Columbus where... You know, it's good to, to dream big dreams in the kingdom and, uh, and to trust God and to, to you know, take steps of faith. Yeah. You know, uh, what Rich was saying earlier about the, the gap, you know, when there's a gap, and whether it's because it's whether it's come around through grief or you know some traumatic thing or just you've you've laid things down, um, for us when we first got married, I, I realise now just how much God was doing in preparing us for what we do now. Mm -hmm. um, we first got married and felt this. We we I laid down my kind of. Um, you know, where I was headed with dance, and, and it was a massive identity crisis. I didn't know what was going to come next, where, what I was going to become. I just, that was what I was going to do um, in my whole kind of more pagan life. That was what I had decided my trajectory was be, and, th and then God said no. And John quit a fantastic job in the jewelry industry, in trade, and came up to Nottingham. With, we got married, moved here. And during those years where there was nothing better than just say, we just surrender to you, we began to get involved with the poor, and, um, and we got involved with praying for all kinds of people in the power of the Holy Spirit and things like that. We learned a lot about pastoral ministry. And it was in that time we began to find ourselves asking a lot of questions about what could church be like. There was frustration. And then kind of coming across the vineyard again and again through conferences and seeing leaders that were humble and real and spoke in a way that was everyday language that our friends could understand we started to see, get a, a vision by seeing leaders that we thought we wanted to be like. And um, when we ended up at Anaheim, finding ourselves in these relationships with people, at one point we moved into a house with Todd and Debbie Hunter. And uh, I remember uh, Debbie saying to me that they had, they had planted a great church in Wheeling, West Virginia, but at that time that they were in Anaheim, I said, why would you leave your church? Why would you give it all up? And she said, because the Lord told us to lay down our vision at this time to serve John and Carol Wimber. And I, it blew me away, the thought that you would lay down vision. You know, So we had arrived at Anaheim with a sense of vision for something, uh, some kind of a church that might be different. We saw the Anaheim Vineyard, which was incredible. I mean, it, the size of it and the plethora of ministries, uh, the way in which they reached out to the poor and the vulnerable. I mean, it just was fantastic. And the way people could get trained in, in biblical studies and just everything was there. So we loved the church and we found ourselves around inspiring people. And it just, we just knew we wanted to do that. We, uh, we were not yet at that point being mentored or trained. That came later with John mm. Melina. But it was um, initially seeing people mm. that we were excited mm. to be around and seemed to take an interest in us mm. and affirm what we were mm. thinking and believing. Yeah, kind of catching. Yeah, we were catching yeah. it, imbibing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
and he was like you. I, I think that's really important because I think what I encountered in Evanston was a was a place that had a big vision. It involved the poor, involved uh, reaching the nations, involved planting churches, and this was stuff I had never encountered before. And it was all um, this culture of expectation around all of that stuff, and that they made it accessible to people like me that didn't even know you could plant a church, and you were kind of invited into that and almost expected to to just walk like a disciple and be keen on those things. And they weren't playing around, they weren't playing church. I remember the first time I went to a service uh, in Evanston, um, uh, they gave a call for ministry at the end for young men to go to uh, the Muslim world and die for their faith. And I thought, you've got to be joking me. First, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Who's signing up to that? And then I look and there's men like running to the front, wow. weeping just to go. And I thought, they're not playing around. And actually, I had to leave for like six months and go to like a safe church because I couldn't, I couldn't cope, you know. Because they were playing for keeps. And it was, you know, but I think some of the best, you know, thinking back on my story and some of that stuff, I think the best, some of the best things we can do to raise up visionary leaders is to be visionary. Yeah. Mm. And to create communities large and small that that unashamedly go for it and we just surrender and sometimes that's going to work great and sometimes that's not but we lay it all down on the line and I saw wonderful things at Evanston and I thought I saw mistakes and I saw things that didn't work out but I saw something that I wanted to give my life to mm. and it was amazing so Amen. so now Sort of fast forwarding, you are, you know, the, 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 the vision of the early days, the stuff that grew in you has really been realized. You know, you're in ministry, you're kind of living out that dream. But as you look back on the journey of that, can you remember sort of key points um, and key people that have influenced uh, your growth as a, as a leader, uh, things that they did, specific situations, Debbie? Well, um, John and Eleanor would have to be the key people in my life. Um, first of all, I, I want to say, as a woman, in the early days, as we were planting churches over here and Anaheim, it, it wasn't yet understood that women were free to lead their own churches and that sort of thing. But um, there was leadership. Women were leading various things, but there wasn't quite the understanding, the theological sort of groundwork hadn't been done, and so we hadn't got there yet. But John... Mumford has never given me the impression that he is intimidated or insecure around powerful, opinionated, you, uh, um, you know, women, you know, and, uh, and, and the truth is, actually, I did need, actually, to be corrected from time to time. I remember one occasion, John taking me to one side and saying, Debbie, the other women in the room don't stand a chance. Well, it was a, so they were better were beautifully said, but I, the gist of it was you're talking too much and you're taking over and the other women aren't able to flourish because you're kind of, you know, you don't give them any space. So things like that needed to be changed. But I felt believed in uh, by John and Eleanor and um, they would Im let me come to everything, even though I, I was never paid on the staff of the salary at South East London. But watching the church start from the beginning and feeling invited to be part of not only everything that was happening, but the behind the scenes. Mm. It was the debriefing after meetings. Mm. Um, and, you know, just the people, the talk about people and attitudes. And, you know, I remember being in one small group where there was this chap who constantly had to sit higher than John. 
He had to foot himself. And he, and he was vying for leadership in the early stages of the church. And we would see it, and we would kind of maybe talk it through with John and Ellen about, what about this guy? And he was, he was trying to take over leadership. He wasn't, didn't stand a chance. But little things like that, that if you don't know them when you're starting a church or starting a small group, that there will be people who try to usurp your leadership and it, with their body language. Things like that. We learned so much in those debriefs. John and Eleanor were are brilliant at formal training as well. I mean, we did... We used to hear some of their teaching probably three or four times. It would probably to the staff first. Then we had maybe a leaders meeting. And we also later had a thing called PPPMG, didn't we? What did it stand <laughs> for? Past, potential potential part professional pastoral yeah. minister, something like that. Catchy. Anyway, so <laughs> really, but anyway, some of you are here. Some of you are here, and we would get, and then again, John would give us more material on leadership. But those were sort of the formal training, but it was the the relational stuff, the 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 one to one, the the conversations mm. over coffee and dinner and yeah. on the phone after something had happened. That's yeah. how I. Yeah, and the, and the same for me too. I remember Rich. Uh, one of the things he would do is drag me uh, to different conferences that he was doing. I heard about it. And it was so you know <laughs> it was so much fun. I mean, it felt so privileged to be there. I think it was mostly just to uh, help him drive because he, Rich can't <laughs> find his way out of this room. Uh, yeah. So. There was a purpose, yeah. but... Uh, we, we talked, I think the phrase you used was horrible driver. Yes, yeah. I oh, think so, but oh, nice. a wonderful man, a horrible... <laughs> horrible driver. Yes, well... Oh, yeah, moving on. But Rich also, uh, he was, he, he really platformed us Yes. Uh, as young leaders. So, I mean, having me be a pastor at mm. the time, I thought, seriously? <laughs> you can't do that? Like... Do you know me? Like, uh, you can't have me be a pastor. I'm, I'm probably not going to be a pastor. Uh, and he just said, no, this is, you know, this is what we see in you. And he kept calling it out and giving us opportunity and giving me opportunity to do that. He invited me on the, the senior team uh, when I was in my 30s, young 30s. And I thought, I'm not senior anything. And I get to sit around this table with you guys. It, it made no sense to me. Uh, but he just kept saying, go for it. You can do it. Mm -hmm. And giving us opportunity. And, and I saw him do that even within Joshua House. So there is, uh, you know, Rich would really do well with giving us freedom within boundaries. So he said, uh, Joshua House will never be its own church. You need to know that now. <laughs> you will never leave this church and take all of these young people away. Uh, <laughs> but you have a ton of freedom within those boundaries. Yeah, and, uh, and be free. And, and Rich also was, uh, I think he's great at mentoring in using, uh, he, he had a, a carrot and stick approach. And uh, he's, he's very good at using, uh, using both. Uh, but what, he, do, what does that look like? He, <laughs> what Rich, is that? <laughs> Rich is very, uh, he, he's... He is not afraid to tell you the truth. Okay. And if you know Rich, then, uh, then, you, then well, you, you know what he thinks. You know where he stands. And, and that's really refreshing, actually, in, uh, in a culture where being nice is the highest value. Mm -hmm. uh, Rich is nice in a truthful way. Mm -hmm. um, and we would do uh, preaching. He, he would get together the young leaders every Friday. He would prepare a text. And he would say, I want you to prepare a message based on this text. And, uh, and he would have prepared his message. 
and then he would just grill you on what you prepared. And every time we would sort of feebly walk in the room like very afraid, what is Rich going to do this week? How is he going to rip us apart and shred our messages? Um, and very often he did that uh, because they were very bad. Um, but also uh, Rich, uh, well, he, he, was, he, he was incredibly encouraging. I remember one time being in tears uh, in his office um, and, uh, you know, just feeling like I was failing. And, uh, and he was just like, no, you're doing great. Keep going. Keep going. You can mm-hmm. do this. And, uh, yeah, and, it, it, and so it, he would sit when I would preach. He would sit in the second row and he would just nod his head and say, uh-huh, yes. And I thought... <laughs> What are you doing, man? <laughs> are you hearing these words? Because they're not that convincing. But he was just so encouraging. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you felt like, yes, I can do this. Uh, so it's just such a great combination of... Uh, yeah. So you don't feel in any way that the, the sort of hard pushing, um, I mean, for you, Debbie, you know, some of the correction, and that, that you feel that was all very positive then and now. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the correction is actually, I honestly, I look back and I think some of the things, I remember Eleanor giving me a prayer meeting to run. She had a prayer meeting that was the, the, such a hit. Mm-hmm. And all the girls were there with our little babies and we used to do the kids and then we'd pray. And it was like a small group as well. It was fantastic. And then she said, Debbie, you, you take one. And so actually it was fantastic, the group I had. It was wonderful. Mm-hmm. But I was always after the next thing. You know, if, if, um, if there's something happening, uh, if revival's, revival's breaking out at somewhere other I'm I'm all over there so along came this opportunity to hear some I think it was somebody in the vineyard had come to my parents church and it was on a Tuesday which was the morning of the prayer and I I abandoned I I I, I delegated but I didn't the prayer <laughs> and uh, you know I got someone else to run it and off I went for this the, for the next fire and all the rest of it because I loved that sort of thing and I got back on the Sunday and Eleanor was very clear with me that this was not the right thing to have done I'd abandoned them too soon, and she was absolutely right, you know, and you, and, but, it, but I learned from it, ah, I needed to stay, you know, this wasn't, I couldn't just abandon them just like that, this wasn't the time, and, but knowing that they would say, again, speak truth, I know where I stand with them, I don't, I, I'm not worried that suddenly there's going to be a big surprise, because they're going to tell me, and many a meeting, John's went, no, shh, and moves on to someone else, because I'm too, yeah. it's, it's fine. So it's like freedom and boundaries. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> freedom absolutely. And boundaries. Yeah, what about you, Andy? Yeah, uh, Steve was, I, saw, I feel a lot like Eric. I mean, he, we, I had the privilege of traveling with him a bit and hanging out with him and a lot of other guys and uh, just a really safe combination of, he certainly told me the truth. I was annihilated many, many times <laughs> by him. And, uh, but then just a solid belief when I didn't believe in me. But I think the most important thing, you know, that he taught me is about fidelity to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I think of Steve and his life, like he's a worshiper, loves Jesus, and he's in it to honor Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he just... I was, I was pretty broken, and I wanted to make him my daddy and all that kind of stuff, all the young man stuff, you know. And he just would never let me do that. And he just said, if you plant a church, if you do anything, it is for Jesus. It's not for me. It's not because you know me. Jesus makes you a leader. He's the one, and you have to know him, and that's how it works. 
And uh, that's probably the most important thing. The thing that's kept me going through, you know, the difficult things I've faced from time to time is I'm doing this for him and I have to be with him. Mm. And that's where vision comes from. That's, he's compelling, I don't have to be compelling. Um, and Steve and a lot of other wise people are the ones that taught me that. So people are really key yeah, in absolutely. that whole, whole process. And, and I also think watching, um, but watch, when we came to start the South Sunder Vineyard to help John Nelly, watching them uh, tell the folks that they were gathering what they were going to do, you know, and watch them make it happen. Mm. Because it's one thing to have somebody vision for this, vision for that, talk, talk, talk. But actually the way they put it mm -hmm. into practice, the way they made it happen, they taught us and then gave us this vision for the possibilities within, when you have a vision, how you can make it happen, then feeds the, the, the dream of, and there's more, because if we can make this happen, we can make the other happen. Mm -hmm. And so actually walking through the steps with them, watching them, how, I mean, they would come up with a sort of, what, who, what, where, when, I think there was one document that we would work mm -hmm. through. Who are we going to invite to do it with us? Uh, when is it going to happen? You know, what's it going to involve? And just little steps like that were like, I mean, most administrative people know those things, but an artist, I hadn't a clue. So, you know, to be able to organize like that and mm. see a vision uh, be accomplished. So real, real practical tasks. Practical in training, that training and watching process. them do it and talk to us. So yes. then by the time they asked us to do, I remember them inviting John and I around to ask us if we would start the children's ministry as we went to Sunday mornings. And, you know, they gave us, I'm amazed they gave us the freedom. They just really said, we'd like you to head up the children's ministry. And that was it. And I think Eleanor brought down some secondhand toys and laid them in the sitting room. <laughs> and, uh, and actually, it was, we just had so much freedom to then, because we'd seen a few things, how they'd made things work. So we knew the who, what, what, what where, when, what, whatever. And, um, and we just, you know, got a, a vision and wrote a document and then got people together and, you know, we kind so of knew So did you feel at the time really called to children's ministry? No, no, we yeah. never... So, when so we why were, did you... Yeah. Oh my gosh, no. Um, <laughs> no! <laughs> but the thing is, is that we were there to serve John and Eleanor. We First and foremost, yeah. God spoke to us, serve John and Eleanor. Those words that Debbie Hunter had said, lay down your vision to serve John and Carol, mm -hmm. I, we felt that about John and Eleanor. Mm -hmm. And so whatever they asked us to do was going to be even if we didn't have a vision initially, we were going to get it because we, God had told us to serve them. So if God told us to serve them and that was their vision for us, then we were going to believe that God would give us a vision. And so before sort of half an hour, we, we were there. We, were, we loved children. But when we were at Anaheim... <laughs> you do love children, you know, don't you? Yeah, we do. But, oh, no, and we yes. became passionate yeah, about it. Absolutely. But when we were at Anaheim for eight months, interns, we went to the youth, we went to the young adult stuff, we did the poor, we did anger management, we did Bible, everything. We never went into the children's ministry because that wasn't what we were into. Mm -hmm. But when we got a vision for it, mm -hmm. um, because we were asked to serve in that way, we became passionate about it. And we got people on board who were better than us and had even more passion. And that was the key. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, they told us how important children were. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's yeah. Such, a, yeah. such an important uh, principle in raising up young leaders mm -hmm. as well, is giving them things to do that they don't necessarily feel called to. I remember yes. the same thing happened with Julie and I when we were, we left the traditional church. The last event we did was a youth event. We were youth leaders. And I looked at Julie and I said, I hate 13-year-old kids. <laughs> oh, this is the last thing we will ever, ever do with them. You don't feel that now, though. And I was so excited. And then Rich, the first meeting we sat down, he was hiring me, he said, 
I want you to lead our youth ministry. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, help me. We can me. smell it, can't we, pastors? <laughs> yes. yeah. How shall we train? But it was, uh, it was <laughs> such great a great training. experience for me, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I was not there to serve my, yes. own, uh, yeah. my own vision. Yeah, great. So um, talk to me now about your context now. You're all in very different uh, situations, stages of ministry, um, but you're all obviously raising leaders yourselves in order to do that ministry. Just talk a bit about the importance of that and um, how, you're, how you're doing that in your different contexts. Sandy, go on. Mm. Well, uh, we, my wife Harmony and I moved to Belfast uh, almost 12 years ago, and we were part of the church for a couple years, and well, actually a year, and, uh, and then kind of we transitioned uh, over to us and leadership. But, you know, we had b built relationships with the folks in the church. It was a small church, but we didn't know anybody in Belfast, really. I mean, we were starting to build relationships with neighbors and things like that. We wouldn't be the strongest gatherers in the world. And uh, so we very, very quickly realized, you know, we have a burden to see this church grow and God's kingdom to come here. Um, but we, uh, we, we don't have natural family links and, you know, decades of friendship with people here to, to invite into what we're doing. So we really quickly had to uh, harness the power of, of leaders and kind of leading through our leaders and gathering through our leaders. And uh, uh, it, it forced us to develop other people who were gifted in other areas than we were and to really learn a lot of lessons about that and to um, and really really do that we, we had to or it was never going to grow and uh, um, you know that has is something that has really uh, shaped who we are and who we are as a church and kind of prepared us for what was going to come next you know that, that ability and skill to cast a vision and then follow up with people, but to do it through people and to be okay with, I have no idea what's going on here, but I trust mm. the person who's running it. You know? so, uh, so Andy, how did you do that? How did you get them to do, like in the early stages of church and then on, how did you get them to do the things that you wanted them to do? Well, I miraculously remembered something that, that Steve said, don't ask people for little things, ask, make the big ask, ask them for big things. And so we, that's, I, I thought, well, that's, that's all I got, so I'll go with that, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, it was a church of, I don't know, 40-ish people, and, and uh, we kind of just said to the leaders, we really need you to step up, and we need you to look after these areas, we need you to come early every Sunday morning, and help us basically do everything, mm -hmm. and we'll pour our lives into you, you pour your lives in the church, mm -hmm. what about that, and miraculously they said, yeah, okay, and we gave it a go, and, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that's how we started. And um, I just kind of feel like most of uh, what we did is we just asked wise people and we just decided, well, I'm not going to try and reinvent the wheel. I'm just going to just try what they say <laughs> first instead of banging my head against a wall and then just trust in Jesus and, and following him. And yeah. Eric, your context is quite different, obviously being in Amsterdam. Um, you know, talk a bit about how you're doing that. Uh, obviously, done that from the beginning. Yeah. But, you know, <clears> well, I was thinking, you know, as Andy was talking, that context is so important because um, the big ask in uh, Dutch culture scares people away. Yes. They run very quickly uh, if you ask for too much, and so we we have to do things really differently. And mm. uh, and you know, a lot of it is just we found that you know helping people. 
get at what they really want. Mm. You know, that the trusting that that the spirit is at work, that that underneath all of the fear and and hesitancy to, toward leadership, that people des desire actually to make a difference. Mm. And and instead of asking for too much, asking for the next thing. Mm. Could you so do this? So identifying that in yeah. them and then trying to lead them into it. Yeah, and yeah. so it's, it's maybe not uh, leading this group, but mm. maybe it's um, helping out with uh, someone who's leading the group. Mm. And, uh, and just, you know, helping people with what is the next step for them instead of mm. too much. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Debbie? Um, I, I need to go back to the more the early stages. Mm, lots um, of different stages. Uh, I would say initially you are absolutely desperate for people to get involved yes. because there is so much to do. Yes. And so everybody is a leader. Everybody's got the potential <laughs> to be a leader as far as I'm concerned. Well, actually always. Uh, we mm. never stop, whatever stage we're at, as leaders looking for leadership potential. Mm. And uh, so they may not be going to be lead within the church, but they're going to lead somewhere, but they're all going to be able to lead someone to Jesus in some way. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, a, an absolute intentionality of, of looking all the time for potential leaders. Initially, mm -hmm. it's very much down, I think, to the first, mm -hmm. the pastor who first mm -hmm. comes to plant. Mm -hmm. So, but, but we had brought a team of six with us who are to this day... Uh, well, one of one couple have got went to plant, but the other two are with us, and actually have ended up on our staff, which it wasn't our plan. But they, but this is years later. But they had given up a lot to come to Nottingham, left jobs and things like that. And I think that spoke um, a huge amount to the people who began to join us, who saw, wow, people have given up. They've taken a big risk, and um, they were all prepared to do a lot of work. And initially, there's a lot of practical stuff. Mm -hmm. So you're looking for servant-hearted people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, there's not actually a lot of room for people to preach uh, or lead worship and, and, you know, to do the, mm -hmm. some of the things that may appear more glamorous. They're not. Mm -hmm. But um, what we were looking for are servant-hearted people, people mm -hmm. who would just turn up early, show up, stack chairs, uh, put things away, clear up the rubbish, and we would do that with them. You know, mm. that we, we didn't arrive late. Now, we do get to do that because there are so many people involved. Mm. But in the early days, we did everything that we expected other people to mm. do. And then we felt we could ask for anything because mm. we had been prepared to do it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, as the, obviously, as the church has grown, what are, just talk a little bit about what are some of that, what are some of the practicalities of how you have equipped and trained leaders? Because I know now at Trent, you're obviously doing it on a large scale, but I've always got the impression talking to you that it's just been more of the same of what you did at the beginning to train and equip leaders um, so some of the uh, processes yeah involved. I mean in the initial stages it would be um, much more John and I relationally with individuals I yeah. remember having Tom and Helen round and asking what are what are your dreams and hopes what are you about and trying to draw out of them what we saw as their I mean I, at one stage Helen was going to go and do further tra training in nursing and stuff like that and I was like Helen you know, you, you, there's so much more for you, you know, you, and, and she's an outstanding leader. Mm. I mean, you know, aside from the fact that we've hired Tom, Helen would be hired in her own right. She is mm. outstanding. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm almost out of a job, you know. <laughs> she is amazing. And so, but she didn't see that in those days. So, so initially, there's, there's a few people around you that you are pouring your life into. But then there are others, and we would do uh, leadership training in our house over various over weeks, and we keep our eye on different people. Then at one point, we decided to, well, as well as training up small groups, and initially John and I did the training, and, and then we kept 
Tom and Helen planted loads of groups and lots of other people planting groups. And so leadership was developing. And we always did a monthly in those days leadership meeting, which was always a high. It was always fun, always very exciting to be at those leaders' meetings and very exhilarating for us. It really, ha they had a lot of momentum. But we then thought, how can we train up young people and uh, put more into them? And, you know, they need to... They just need more hands-on and mm. more relationship. And we came across this idea of doing a discipleship year. Mm. Um, and we, I think, hand-picked people at that stage and got them to, to come along. And, and we actually said, this is going to be a terrible year. Mm. You know, you, you're, you're going to work really hard. And so the emphasis in that year is not on leadership, it's on it's serving. It's on serving, but we're looking for potential church planters. Now, actually, the Great. discipleship year <laughs> has evolved into being a foundation for leadership mm. A foundation for discipleship. I mean, they are, it's all about serving. But then after that, we do more things like a leadership development year. And there's leadership development in every area of the life of the church. If you're in kids, you get leadership development and ongoing training. If you're at the Arches, you're being developed as a leader. If you're, you know, uh, part of the small group system, there's, mm. everywhere is developing leaders. Mm. We, we, we have to have more leaders. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, Debbie, one of the things I think um, Steve and I, in Leicester, in the, in the next city, I think one of the, the great things about church planting is as you church plant, uh, you have Sundays where you can go and visit other churches. So for us, we were able to come up to Trent Vineyard and be part of the church for six months, which was just great fun. But I think the thing that we really noticed um, aside or as well as a, a culture of serving was this culture of leadership that you've developed at Trent Vineyard. And it's like a sort of, um, it starts with a, a leadership team around you and then it just sort of multiplies out into the church. But that team around you are very visionary um, and they have their own vision as well as your vision. Um, and they lead enormous areas of ministry and multiply you really effectively and raise up other leaders just like them. And so just... How have you done that? <laughs> How did you do that, Debbie? Uh, do you, the, the one yeah. phrase I've got to say, please don't multiply us. John and I are the most. No, 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 no. But they, they, yeah. they, they, in a sense, they multiply the heart that we have to see things grow and develop. And to, I, I do believe that God gives So you don't, God you gives don't vision. see that as multiplying your vision. You see that as them in their own Well, we have right. a very broad sweep umbrella vision that mm. is all about extending the kingdom. It's very broad and it's, it's, it's preach the gospel, you know, be a blessing to the city in every way you can. I mean, John has the statement, none of us know it off by heart, it's too long. But it's, it's, yeah. it's all encompassing. We obviously have, um, uh, you know, the, the culture of service is a very important one for us. And we want people, we don't want people with agenda, we don't want people yeah. who are trying to lead. As soon as somebody comes and says, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a natural evangelist, I could really change, I could, you know, just get me on the platform, I'll speak, we're like, we're not interested. Go and help cook for the Alpha and we'll see whether you really are a servant leader first and then you'll fit with our culture. So we kind of spit people out who aren't naturally servant-hearted, which is maybe to our detriment. Um, but uh, I've forgotten the rest. I well, just how did, you, how did you raise leaders around you Okay. that yeah. lead other leaders, that lead large areas of ministry and have big vision yeah. and, and actually go with that. Yeah. How did so, you do that? So when we're appointing leaders and when our staff and people like Tom and Helen appoint people, we're really looking for, we say, this is, we would like, so for example, the kids ministry, we want the best kids ministry 
We want people to come to this church and have this incredible experience. They will not want to leave us, even if they didn't come for their reasons. They will not want to go because the kids are having the most incredible encounters with Jesus. They are being looked after phenomenally well. So we say that's what we're looking for. You go away and work out how you want to do it. And, um, you know, and, that's, and so then our staff have just freedom to mm. develop vision and, um, and then give their people. So they then come up with incredible ideas, mm. mega, morning, mega nights, mega mornings. I, you know, when families come, this whole place has turned into a fun, bouncy castles and all sorts of things. And, and families come from everywhere and all mm. with kids. And, and it's, it's just amazing, you know, filled with kids and families. That's nothing. John and I never, we wouldn't have wanted the place wrecked. <laughs> so they don't always, stood in the way. you don't necessarily always, always agree. You let them, do you? We may, no, no, we would agree because yeah. the, it comes, I mean, that are, you know, we don't want the carpet wrecked, but that's not what we built the building yeah. for. But uh, absolutely. So freedom that and is, boundaries. There's freedom yeah. and boundaries. But no, no, that wouldn't be a boundary. That's just a, a sort of uncomfortable thing, which is the, the journey of a leader. We're uncomfortable <laughs> with some things. But yeah. no, if it was, if it was, you know, if it was something that really um, ran against yes. the vision, we would say no. But that's totally part yes. of under the umbrella. But it's not an idea that we came up with. We mm. didn't say we want you to do this event, that event. They, they come up with the carol service. Nigel and his team, they come up with the most incredible ideas. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's scary because it's the biggest service that we do. And the only part that John and I get to play is we get to now come in a day before and just see that the set... And the visuals and all that is going to be something that doesn't jar with us. And so we could tweak it at that point. We could, and then we might get to speak. <laughs> might get to speak. Might get to speak because, you know, we may not be the best people for that evening. So um, you, you've talked about your own development. You've talked about some of the development within your own church. What about raising leaders in your own context that will not stay, people that are called to a vision beyond the ministry that you're leading, uh, whether they're uh, called to church planting or, or uh, to mission? How are you identifying those people and getting them ready, Andy? How are you? Well, that's, uh, uh, I always heard, uh, you know, people that have sent lots and lots of people out to plant churches or, or do mission or do whatever. I, I always heard them talk about the pain and the emotional barriers of that. And I always was kind of like, kind of understood up here. I didn't know it in the heart. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, as we've done that a little bit, um, that is one of the big challenges of being ascending church or even just even raising up leaders and giving them things and giving them responsibility for people and is uh, just the emotional barriers of doing that. And and working through that and and uh, saying a lot of goodbyes and uh, and trust in Jesus with those people and those ministries and things like that. Um, but you, you, I, I found you have to keep casting that vision. You have to keep the uh, the kingdom and its message and its um, the imperative of the kingdom. This must be done. We must do these things. Uh, forefront, and you have to balance that with love and care and affection and all that stuff. But we're on mission, and that's always got to be the edge to what we do and, and the vision we cast. And um, if you're talking about how do you raise up people who are going to go, you have to have a big vision that this is worth going for, and these are places worth going to, and, and doing similar kinds of So for you, church planting is part of your bigger vision as a church. Uh, absolutely, it's it's something that uh, I haven't spent massive amounts of time talking about with our church that I'm about to start talking about. Um, 
with them uh, because it's going to come at a cost and um, you know I just haven't really felt from the Lord this now that it's the time I haven't felt that before now I feel like it is um, and what did you ask me I just started to waffle yeah, there sorry identifying church planters what are you looking for what am I looking for I am looking for people who um, are available and I'm looking for people who are it could be an embryonic way, but they are functioning in it already. They're leaning into it already. It could be messy. It could be little. It doesn't have to be amazing, but they're actually doing it. Uh, a couple of months ago, it was in the autumn, and I was rushing to our city center venue to do something I don't even know what I was going to do, and I saw a guy that I knew, and he was busking. And uh, so I knew him, and I knew a little bit of his story, and I knew that he believed that he was a singer-songwriter, performer guy, and he believed that and he said, this is who I am. And he was out on a street corner with his guitar, singing his songs at the top of his voice at like six o'clock at night for people. And he believed he was something and there was a functional reality to it. He didn't need to be on stage at Carnegie Hall. He didn't need to be you know, on tour. He was actually doing it and he was taking steps towards it. And uh, I'm looking for people that are doing that, specifically church planters, you know, are they gathering people around Jesus? Are they doing what they can to call people to follow Jesus? Are they out there uh, praying for the sick? And, and are they passionately introducing people, you know, making them worshipers of Jesus? And mm -hmm. so I'm looking for functional realities mm -hmm. in people. What about you, Eric? What are we looking for? Well, I, I think in the vineyard, we always give away our best. Mm -hmm. And that, that generally means those that are closest to us mm -hmm. on our team. So. Uh, we, we've not planted a, a church out of Vineyard Amsterdam, but when we do, it will be out of our team, most likely. Mm. Um, it's going to be those that I've invested in the most and those that are, have been given the most encouragement to go for it mm. and to do the kingdom stuff. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's the most important thing because with those folks, we have the highest degree of confidence mm. um, and faith that when we send them out, um, that we've already invested in them enough to know that they can do it. Mm. And, uh, and so I, I think especially in our context in, in Europe, it's, it's really difficult to, to see something work. Mm. Uh, and the only way for it to happen is for, you know, uh, to send out of these close communities where it is working mm. and to do it again with that mutual encouragement, support. Mm. Yeah, um, thank so. you. you know, there is a real tension as we lead our churches because God gives you a vision for your local setting mm -hmm. and your local church and you, are, you love your people and mm. you see all the possibilities. But then there's a bigger picture, which is we're part of a movement and we're on the move and we mm. have a vision for the whole nation and beyond. And that's only going to happen through church planting. And so there's these two things in a bit of a tension. And certainly for us in the first few years, we were quite protective about we're not going to plant yet. So although we talked about the possibility and we talked to the church that we would be a church planting church, that was not the time. We needed to just get our foundation sorted. And then when we did start to plant, it is incredibly painful. Mm. There is no way to disguise the fact that mm. it's, you're losing people you love you're losing people who other people love. Not everybody gets to go with them. Mm. Um, it shakes you up as a church and um, it hits your finances. I mean, it, it just hits everywhere. And, it, and if the right people go, they've usually been probably the closest, as you say, to you mm. and to the team. Um, but of course, now that we're bigger, 
we have got more people that we could send who may not have been on the staff, but we're, you know, we're opening it up so it's not just staff who go, but there are others who we will be investing in intentionally mm -hmm. to plant. But there's always more for us here to do. So there's the tension all the time, you know. <gasps> and I do think sometimes there are people you have to say, no, not yet. We need you for this. And unless they really fight you on it, because we can't, we don't own people, Jesus does. Um, there are times when you say no, or there are other people that you say, it's time for you to go. You need to realize God is calling you and help them see that that is what the Lord is doing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we need to lead in that process as well. Yeah. I just, Andy, I'd just like to ask you just one final question. Um, I know just on the whole side of church planting, sending people, um, you've been a valuable part of our team in doing that. And I know uh, that in your church in Ireland, uh, you do have vision to mentor and train, equip church planters in your geography to send there and beyond. Obviously, leading a hub um, is, a, is a big job. I know that you personally coach and develop church planters. And, and, and I know that you're busy <laughs> already. So what is it, what has propelled you to do that? Because you invest heavily in church planters. Why do you do that? Uh, well, I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, part of it's calling. It's mm -hmm. what I've been asked by Jesus to do, I think. Part of it's DNA. I'm part of this family, part of this movement. This is what we do. We, we plant churches and we serve the movement and we invest in people and we send them out. But there's also something, um, as I've been thinking about this question, I saw, you know, when I first came to Evanston Vineyard, I saw, you know, in Steve and his team and that church and a lot of other vineyard churches, just this healthy hunger for more. And we were singing about it in worship last night and this morning, more, Lord, would you give us more? And I think that that's a really good thing, to hunger for more of the kingdom. And uh, so I, I just saw in Steve, you know, I remember kind of a Mr. Miyagi moment, you know, and it's like, you know, why plant one when you can plant a hundred? You know, because I was watching him travel all over the world and invest in church planting in big ways and small ways. In some places he'd go, it would just be, I'm just going to talk to a small group of people, other things would be massive conference. It was why, why do one when you can do many? And you can spend yourself and you can multiply yourself. And it's amazing what happens when you keep focused on Jesus and his mission and you don't mind who gets the credit for things. And uh, I just think that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And that we have a mandate uh, in the Great Commission to go make some disciples. And, uh, you know, as far as Ireland goes, I, I'm asking the Lord for that, you know, before I die, whenever that is, that I get to see 100 churches planted Amen. on that island. Amen. And so if you're that. interested, <laughs> um, yeah. there's some beautiful places uh, that we need it. But I, I just think that's how we're to be wired. And uh, yeah. I, I just, I didn't give up things to come to Ireland and plant our life there to do a nice church. I've pastored a nice church and that's fine, but that's not worth giving your life to. Uh, but seeing the kingdom break out all mm. over a nation, seeing a nation yeah. change, seeing yeah. multiple people come to yeah. faith in Jesus and seeing a culture transform, like that's mm. worth mm. not just getting out of bed in the morning, it's worth dying for, Thank losing you. everything for. So that's, that's why. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful.